terror in Washington, D.C. has shaken our world. Protesters, rioters, mobs, terrorists. Each has its own legal definition for the U.S. justice system to decide. Still, what happened at the Capitol was a failed but no less deadly coup attempt by different factions of a variety of conspiracy groups who came together to shake democracy's foundation. But democracy did not allow it to succeed. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins. And this is still the people's house. The United States is more divided than ever as it struggles with record numbers of COVID-19, now the insurrection, and a new president and vice president who are changing the face of Washington. Many Americans and even some Trump supporters say people who stormed the Capitol do not represent them and that they were led astray and called to arms in some kind of bizarre code. Let's have trial by combat! Whatever fractious side is presented, the kind of violence the insurrectionists brought revealed that anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, and anti-immigration has once again reared its ugly, evil head. Today on the program, we're joined by filmmakers Dan Shannon and Isabel Del Pelto, and others from their award-winning documentary, Me the People, to speak about the many policies of populist leaders and countries that are doing more harm than good in a world that is now too connected for countries to become islands. When a politician is able to combine nativism and populism, it creates a very, very volatile mix that can be tapped into with incredible emotion. That was a scene from Isabel DiPalto and her husband, Dan Shannon, an award-winning documentary film team. Their latest documentary is Me, the People, and has won numerous awards around the world. Thank you both for joining me. So your film almost predicted what we have seen unfold in the U.S., especially on January the 6th, uh, with the violent mob attacking the Capitol. Uh, was it quite a surprise what you saw unfold just a few weeks ago? Well, I would say not. I would say not. Mm. Um, there's a scene in our film where we see, you know, a, a, a Washington monument and we have the voice of President-elect Trump uh, talking about, hey, when the cameras turn away, it's because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a protester. And, he, and, then, and then he mumbles, I'm going to get my own protesters. What is the number one thing that you want the audience to take away from this conversation about populist leadership, immigration and how our world is changing. The idea that we need to be listening to the other side. Democracy is based on conversation. No one is right. Everybody is right. Reaching a consensus me means having a discussion of listening and bringing arguments forward that make sense and that are being considered. I might add to that that um, I think we have responsibility as citizens to be cognizant of our own involvement in communications. I think that there's rhetoric on both sides. I think that we're all subject to clickbait that either agrees or doesn't agree with our politics. And I think that we need to, when we click on something before clicking, ask ourselves, am I being played? Because the micro-targeting capacity to choose somebody of a specific age or, or a political persuasion based on other things they've done is very fine. And governments are, are becoming majority governments based on going to get two and 3%. This is the fundamental idea behind the film. 
Thank you both. Dan, you're going to be joining me on the queue a little bit later. And Isabel, you're going to be talking with Context Executive Producer Susan Ponting. A violent scene that played out on Capitol Hill as supporters of President Trump stormed the Capitol buildings, even getting into the Senate chambers. With us now is political scientist, author, and professor David Koizis. Do Americans know or care how the world is depicting them? You know, a beacon of hope and democracy just crumbling in front of our eyes? Well, some are and some aren't. I think that, that that's fairly evident. Um, Americans have thought of themselves as being almost the inventors of democracy in some in some fashion. And it, it is true that Americans pioneer the um, uh, the extension of the franchise to have a very wide um, electorate. Um, you know, up until 1832 in Great Britain, you know, very few males and, and the only property holders had the right to vote. And Americans uh, uh, pushed forward on enfranchising a, a very large number of uh, people in their electorate. And that's not a that's not an insignificant uh, uh, accomplishment, given the um, the uh, what was going on in the 19th century. And, um, and they were far ahead of everybody else. Um, but right now, I think uh, many Americans are embarrassed by what they're seeing uh, happening, playing out in the Capitol and, and possibly in the state capitals as well, if what we're hearing is correct. Uh, Forty years ago, it seemed to me that the, that the American polity was not nearly as divided as it is now. Yes, there were partisan divisions. Yes, there were disagreements, and they were, they were aired in debates on the floor of Congress. But um, I think things have gotten quite a bit worse over the last generation, and that's not, uh, that's not a happy thing for somebody to watch. Do you think that played a role in just seeing a lot of disenfranchised groups like white supremacist groups, QAnon, Proud Boys, so forth, um, really falling in line? with Trump and his rhetoric? Well, I think so. I think that if you have groups of people, if you have a whole segment of the population that feels as though they've lost out on, um, on, on the American way of life, if you will, then, then they may be, they may be um, um, vulnerable to the promises of, 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 of anybody, whether they're reputable or not. What will it need to turn around? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say some somebody who's who's capable of, of reconciling uh, the various groups within the United States, and and some presidents do that better than, than others. Um, I will I will say that I think the current occupant, the outgoing occupant of the White House, has been very bad at at uh, bringing people together outside of his own uh, support base, and and that's um, that's that's very difficult. All right, Professor David Koisis, thanks so much for joining us today on Context. We have to, whether we're progressive, independent, conservative, we need to be comfortable enough with complicated conversations so that we're better understanding what inequality means to any American, regardless of who they are, where they're from, what they look like. Lawrence Mead is a professor of politics and public policy at New York University. His latest book, Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference and American Power, talks about America's fierce individualism. Professor Mead, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you explain what you mean by America's deepest problems derive from groups and nations that reflect more passive differential, differential temperament of the non-West? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, individualist culture, which is the dominant view of life in America, is all about pursuing goals that people decide for themselves. And so it's inner driven. 
Whereas the non-Western world, although highly diverse, shares a characteristic of greater caution. Essentially, people take their cues from what the outside world tells them to do rather than seeking change themselves. So I don't mean that there's nobody who seeks change, but essentially it's a reactive culture where people are taking their cues from the outside world and they adjust to that. Whereas in the US, uh, people do less of that and instead pursue their personal goals. You said in the documentary, Me, the People, that Donald Trump gave many who felt that they didn't have a voice, a voice again. Was last Wednesday's uh, insurrection a reflection of them finding their voice? Yes and no. Obviously, they made a statement that got a lot of attention. And they're saying in various ways, we've been forgotten about. Uh, no one has really noticed our problems. I think that's true. And that is... Uh, Trump's achievement really is to have recognized that and made it a basis for his campaign for the White House. I don't think it means that you need to have a violent demonstration as they did on the Capitol. I don't think that means you're really finding your voice. You have to express what you want and then leaders have to carry it out. And to some extent, Trump did that during his term. Much of the controversy about him was about his personal behavior but uh, what he did in terms of policy was actually to respond to some of the demands of the people that voted for him. You also say uh, the chief threat to American leadership is no longer foreign rivals like yeah. China, but the decay of individualism within our own society. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Uh, the main threat we face is that the way of life that is normal in America, the individualist way of life, is actually quite demanding quite difficult. Uh, and uh, because uh, a substantial share of the American population has come from other cultures than that, um, it's hard for them to accept this, and they are having a hard time adjusting. That's my understanding of what of the problems that we have with minority groups, the poor, and immigrants. These are groups that are having a hard time in America for a lot of reasons, but one of them is simply that they came from a world in which uh, uh, simply pursuing one's own goals was a lot less demanded of them. So they didn't have to do as much. They knew who they were and they more or less took a status given to them by their society. In America, however, you are expected to pursue your own goals, to seek to get ahead and so on. And that creates a lot of stress that you really didn't have in the old country. And I think that is why uh, these groups are having a hard time. Explain that, give me a, an example of how you're seeing um, immigrants not feeling like they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. A am I interpreting what you're saying correctly, that they don't feel that they can put initiative into what they're doing every no, day? No, no, they... Struggling they, to understand what you're they saying. They are struggling. They're, no, they're not having an easy time. I'm not saying that they're lazy, not at all. They're often working very hard. But what's missing is the quality of autonomy that is characteristic of the, of the groups that came from Europe. Those people set out to achieve their own lives. They saw life as a project. Whereas groups from the non-West see life as survival. They really don't think that it's possible for them to achieve personal goals. And we traditionally said that that's entirely due to the way they've been treated in America. And there is certainly truth to that. I'm not saying that they've always been treated fairly, but they came here with a different view of what life was about. And therefore they, don't, they have a harder time getting ahead. And it's notable that some elements of all these groups and notably the black middle class has actually been quite successful. And the reason is they adopted 
the native view of individualism. They basically said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do what people from Europe do. We're going to set our own goals and pursue them. And they've been able to do that, and they're doing rather well. So that makes them different, and the main reason is that they have overcome cultural difference. But the other groups are, are, have to do that also, and they're having a harder time. All right, Professor Lawrence Mead of New York University, thank you so much for your time. Like to watch more Context Beyond the Headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. A few months after his election, Prime Minister Legault launched a rallying cry against immigration and religious symbols, which sounded all too familiar. Je me dis, tous les Québécois ont compris qu'il est temps que ce projet de loi soit adopté, puis c'est ce qu'on va faire aujourd'hui. Isabelle Depelto, your film touches on so many things. Who are the people from other religions who are most affected by Bill 21? Women often wear a symbol, a religious symbol. In Quebec, there's been a lot of Muslim women uh, immigrating to Quebec uh, from North Africa. Um, and so these women came to Canada thinking, okay, I can have a life here. I can be a teacher. I can have a family. I can live freely. Um, and, and it's an escape for them and it's an opportunity for them. So many of these women have become professors, teachers, uh, very educated, lawyers, um, and now all of a sudden with this law, they can no longer enter the profession or progress within their profession because they're wearing a hijab. And then, so really important to point out, why should we as Christians be the greatest defenders of women's rights? Well, Jesus was. So, you know, Jesus called uh, the first evangelist to be a woman. Um, he also uh, defended prostitutes. He defended women that were in, in, in very precarious situations that were going to be stoned or outcast. Um, Jesus didn't have uh, a kind of predisposed negative uh, attitude towards women. The culture did at the time, um, but he stood up against that and defended women. So yeah, the culture still does really. When you look yeah. at the vitriol and hatred going toward people like Hillary Clinton or Nancy Pelosi, they, they pick women, it seems, uh, to want to get rid of first. Yes, and you know, if you look at the commentary towards women in leadership, especially, when they are criticized, they're usually criticized about their hair, about what they wear, about how they look. You never hear those comments about men in leadership. So this is just a very small example of how demeaning we can be towards women in leadership. But the other thing is, when women speak, uh, for instance, you, you mentioned um, Hillary Clinton and, and Nancy Pelosi. There is a, a, an attitude of, well, 
you know, she's just a woman. How would she know? Um, and, and there's like a, a kind of um, denigration of, of women in leadership, which is very sad. And, you know, it's not just the Americans. It's, it's here in Canada as well. Are you hopeful that uh, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will change that? So for sure, it's, uh, Joe Biden was, was extremely st strategic in, in his choice. And it is partly why I think he was elected. I think women are starting to wake up and cast their votes. They're starting to voice their, their political opinion. They're starting to take uh, their place in the public sphere. Um, I think that for sure, Trump's attitude towards women was very harmful. Um, his, his way of treating them and, and minimizing abuse um, gave license to already a very high degree of abuse in many homes. But I think that overall now with the new government, I don't think that it's going to be overnight. I think it's going to take years um, to undo and to rebuild and to allow women and respect women in leadership. And all we need to do is follow Jesus's example. Yes, indeed, because I mean, uh, he wasn't afraid to give women a voice. Um, and in, in that respect, I think that it, it's, it's just a question of balance because I think women are good leaders. Uh, many, many studies have shown that women in leadership have extremely outperformed a lot of men. Yeah, Harvard uh, Business School came out with a women leaders in the time of crisis just a couple of weeks ago. Exactly. But, you know, again, it's not a question of, of saying, well, should we just, you know, uh, impose that women be in leadership? It's not that. It's a question of saying, well, if there's two applicants for the same job in leadership, let's not look at, at their gender. Let's look at their capacity. Trump's not against all media. He's against certain ones that he can use politically as an opponent. And I think there's something really effective at using the press, the, particularly the press he points to, as a rally, as a way of kind of mobilizing his base to say, well, look at us, look at how we're under attack. Professor Fenwick McKelvey is an internet researcher and associate professor of communication studies at Concordia University, and he joins us today. So tell me, is the media broken? Well, I think that's a deep question, and I think it reveals a lot of anxieties that we have today. People uh, rely on the news, they rely on the news to be informed, and yet at the same time, what counts as the source of the news, whether it's social media or TV broadcasting, the radio or public broadcasting, people have a lot of different sources of information they're coming from, and the diversity and sometimes the fact that you're getting mixed messages can really undermine people's confidence in all the news they're receiving. When we move to social media and we see Facebook and Twitter and Google shutting down Donald Trump's um, accounts permanently. This is, I think, what gets into why there's such anxiety is that right now what we've seen is that as traditional broadcasters change and media habits differ, people move from, say, watching the nightly news to watching the news online. Mm -hmm. And they get that news often through using social media. 
and they have a, a wider array of choices. And sometimes they can start selecting more news that you know is, is closer to the partisan bias. What we're really seeing is that Facebook and YouTube and Google and, and Twitter to a lesser degree are really influential because all of a sudden they have control over who has access to the large audiences using their platforms. And that raises these really deep questions that we have no answer to about what's a responsible way of making sure that they're ensuring that people aren't abusing the, their platforms or using it to spread hate or harmful information or using it to fraud and, and, and trick people. And those are the, the part of the anxieties we have about whether we have enough trust in the media. Yeah, and, and now we're seeing a, a ban on the far-right platform Parler. What does that mean in your eyes when it comes to democracy and the freedom of speech when you have a group being silenced that way? What we've seen on the, on the attack on Capitol Hill, I think a lot of people took it as a surprise, but for those studying you know, far-right communities on the internet, there's been growing concern about certain extremists turning to be more violent and using social media platforms to organize and organize what we see as violent rallies. And so I think what we're now trying to do is actually catch up to, I, I think, four to five years of complete ignorance about how do you address that issue? And in some ways, what we're seeing is this reaction where if we just shut down the platforms, if we take Parler offline, we're going to be able to fix this problem. And I think the challenge is that this is a deep, long-term trend where people are really committed and have come to have deep-seated beliefs that would cause them to attack the Capitol Hill. And what we're trying to do is address that through fixing you know, these access to media questions. So I have sometimes worried that's not the right answer to the problems that we have. Let's look at conventional media. Will we ever trust it fully ever again? I think that one, you know, one thing to say is that we need to be specific about the concerns here. And we don't see in the research the same degree of concern about the far left as we do about the far right. And so I think what we're talking about specifically here is, is far right extremism online. And that's something we see of growing influence. And I think that a lot of what has come about is that these communities, you see it through a number of different conspiracy groups, are very adept at, dis at dismantling and building counterfactual you know, evidence and truths and realities. And I think it's going to be really hard to build back public trust in any media system, uh, especially you know the idea that it could be one reality that we all agree on. And I think this is a real challenge of how do you go forward ensuring that those people that have become really distrustful of the, of the news and really believing in more and more extreme conspiracy, how do you actually bring them back in or bring them into the fold of uh, I think what is kind of liberal democratic politics. Dan Shannon is back with me along with author Eric Kaufman and executive director of the National Immigration Forum, Ali Nurani, to discuss what is one of the most controversial and polarizing political issues, immigration. So, Eric, I'm going to start with you. You, you stated in the documentary, uh, Me the People, that the rise in populist leaders in North America, uh, like the U.S. and in Europe, has been based on the issue of immigration. Explain that. How has that happened? Um, well, this is really uh, the key issue for explaining voting for the populist right in Europe, for voting for Brexit in the UK, and also for explaining why Trump wins the 2015 primary and then the 2016 election. Uh, and this is simply, if you look at voting data, survey data, you can see that, for example, whether you're rich or poor as a white American doesn't tell, uh, tell us whether you vote for Trump, but your views on immigration are hugely important for telling us whether you vote for Trump. And, and actually, up until COVID, immigration was the leading issue uh, amongst Republicans. It, was, it had even reached about 40% uh, 
almost a Republican saying that was the number one issue facing the United States. Prior to the Brexit vote, similarly, about 40% of uh, Brexit voters said that was the number one issue facing the UK. So far and away, uh, the top issue, um, explaining the rise of the populist right. Just as another little statistic in Sweden, 99% uh, of Sweden Democrat voters um, want immigration reduced. And, and so that kind of gives you an idea of how ubiquitous this is. Ali, I'd like to hear from you. Why do you think immigration has become this contentious issue? And, and maybe I'll correct, anti-immigration, it seems, has become so contentious, especially in the last uh, two decades. Well, I think what's happened over the last two decades is that you, you've seen a, uh, an evolution, if you will, or maybe a devolution. Uh, you're starting with a populism and uh, really trying to focus on economic issues, and that quickly kind of moves into nationalism and trying to kind of define identity and who should or should not be part of the United States, and then turns into white nationalism quite quickly. And now what we're contending with quite a bit in the U.S. is the, the ascent of Christian nationalism, where faith and politics and identity really mix together in this very, very toxic brew. And immigration is really kind of the, the perfect ingredient for that brew to become more and more toxic over the last four years, much less the two, next two, de last two decades. So the question very much is, okay, what do we do moving forward? But, uh, you know, I think at its core, that's the problem that we're facing. Yeah. Dan, from your findings in your great documentary, Me the People, what happens to a nation when a populist leader comes to power and pushes like kind of an us versus them mentality in their country? This film started not as a title, Me the People, but Immigrant Nation. And it was a reaction to Law 21 in Quebec, which was creating a schism around a very different um, uh, ethos of immigration policies for the new CAQ CAC government, uh, which seemed uh, diametrically opposite to what we sense is in English Canada. Uh, and this brought us into, you know, the, 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 the demonization of, of uh, immigration and immigrants and specifically visible minorities in Quebec in a way that we were not used to here in Quebec. Uh, and then the film quickly grew out of that into, well, what's happening in the States? what's happening in, in the UK and around the world. Uh, how can we educate then people about the importance of welcoming in immigrants and their importance in our uh, countries, in our economies, and how they benefit our countries? I'll start with you, Ali. So I, we think that we have to start with, in essence, meet people where they are, but don't leave them there. And for us, it's really engaging faith communities through their moral framework and then helping them see that it is okay to change an in-group from a very isolationist uh, perspective on the religion to something that is more welcoming. All right. How about you, Eric? A narrative which says uh, your country is getting more and more diverse, celebrate that, will only work with part of the population, and it will actually backfire with another part. So you also have to have a narrative that says immigrants are coming in, but they've always assimilated, and they will not leave your country vastly changed from what it was before. That kind of a message actually seems to work better with conservative voters who might go populist. Okay, I'm going to leave the last word to you, Dan. What are your thoughts? Well, I'd like to echo what Erica just said in the sense that I believe that education is, is the paramount uh, point here. If we can, uh, in Canada in particular, we know that we have a big target for, for new immigrants because we need people to fill those jobs. Um, I think we need to make them feel welcome. We need to create a level playing field for uh, people uh, you know, of, of different or 
backgrounds in, in the country in terms of the uh, economics and building the country as a, as a, as a cohesive unity. All right, Dan Shannon, uh, Eric Kaufman, and Ali Nurani, thank you so much all for joining us today. Thank you all for watching. We couldn't do this program without our team behind the scenes or you, our donors, who help ensure Christian analysis on news and current events. For more information, you can go to our website, context.show. For all of us here, thanks for watching.